This is eSports Today with Rob Zachney and Andrew Gruen. Welcome to this edition of eSports Today for September 8th, 2015. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, alongside Andrew Gruen, here to fill you in on what's happening in the world of eSports. On today's show, a giant falls in EULCS as SK Gaming lose their relegation series. We'll also be taking a look at a great week in StarCraft 2 as the Star League and Pro League semifinals both had some of the best matches we've ever seen in StarCraft 2. But first, the final challengers have qualified for the League of Legends World Championship playoffs, which start next month. In the China Regional Finals this last week, Edward Gaming came roaring back to life and put their lackluster summer firmly in the rearview mirror as they crushed their way through the upper bracket to win a spot at Worlds. By contrast, the summer's overperforming underdog, Chao Gu, lost the magic as Invictus Gaming gave them two sound beatings at regionals to earn the final spot for China at Worlds. So, Rob, you follow League a lot more closely than I do, certainly the Asian scene. Uh, and I know you've been talking about Edward Gaming for, for like the past couple of months. And now, you know, you mentioned that they've been in a, in a downswing. So I'm really curious, what is it about Edward Gaming that has kept your attention through a downswing? And what seems to have turned it around? Well, you have to remember that I was at the Midseason Invitational when EDG faced off against SK Telecom in the final and bested them. And not only that, but they did it by giving SK's best player, Faker, his absolute best champion in the deciding game. So it's this really dramatic moment, and it was fantastic to be there. And so one reason I've been following this team is simply because I came out of that tournament more invested in them. And throughout that tournament, they looked like a categorically better team than anybody else who was there. Uh, the SK series was close, but not so much uh, that last game. Uh, EDG won a very convincing uh, victory at, at MSI. But as the scores Kelsey Moser reminded us last week, MSI was an atypical moment in that team's history, and since then they've struggled a little bit. And, you know, having watched them in this regional playoff, I'm not so sure EDG have turned things around. It was an odd thing, but compared to what we saw in the LPL finals between Chaogu and LGD, these regionals were a lot looser, I guess I'd say. Uh, and I think the really worrying issues for both Invictus Gaming and EDG were on full display when they played in the upper bracket final. I'm not saying aggression at all stages of the game is an inherent good, and one of the things that's probably overstated and overdone in League is there's often panic if teams aren't taking like decisive advantages in, in the opening minutes. Uh, it's okay to be more conservative. It's okay to be more focused on uh, you know farming. Even allowing for that, though, both of these teams were playing surprisingly conservative farm-focused early games, and then they were trying to win it all later with these massive team fights around major objectives. It was a very volatile way to play. And it's a style that I haven't seen that much of uh, in a few years, really. Uh, so EDG weren't able to stop Invictus Gaming from getting whatever picks they wanted. And in that first game, IG were taking a sizable lead. But then they almost threw the entire game away with this kind of sloppy Baron play. It was a little reminiscent of the uh, Echo Slam we saw at the end of the International, where IG puts the entire team into the Baron Pit and apparently just kind of assumed that EGD wouldn't engage onto them. And, of course, that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, like Baron, just like Roshan, it's one of those plays that is so high risk, you always have to, you know, approach it like you're taking your life in your hands. Uh, so EDG turns the game around with this with this amazing team fight, 
but then they squander their comeback with poor execution of their own, and both teams were really taking uh, kind of crazy risks to try to win the game with one big decisive fight. There were a lot of points where people probably needed to just fall back and you know take the victory you've got and don't try to win the game all, all in one throw. Uh, so that first game and perhaps the regional final as a whole didn't really showcase two brilliant teams it showcased two teams who were good enough to win this qualifier, good enough to dominate this qualifier. But will any of that fly against LGD, against SK Telecom or Fnatic? I'm not too sure. And in the background of the Chinese World's qualifiers, we're also getting word that Riot Games may be moving in to take complete control over the League of Legends esports system. You know, currently the Chinese scene is licensed out by Riot Games' parent company to a third-party provider who puts on tournaments, sort of like the ESL in the West. Uh, But now Riot Games wants to bring China under their roof and standardize things. Uh, And this is a pretty big deal, especially within the Chinese scene, uh, as we would see essentially the same thing happen there as happened in North America and Europe when Riot got serious about the LCS back in 2012, uh, which is to say that tons of third-party tournaments uh, will get shut down, players lose chances to make money, regulations are going to get stiffer uh, but overall fans are are treated to a much more structured experience uh, but this is an interesting moment to kind of put riots style of esports up for debate here um League of Legends is a very popular esport here in the West, even more so in Asia. But I've long theorized that here in North America, and even in Europe, League of Legends has begun to stagnate a little bit. Every LCS broadcast seems to have about 300,000 concurrent viewers, which is great. But when those numbers are so steady, you start to wonder if it's the same 300,000 people showing up every time. Uh, And I kind of wonder if Riot's heavy-handed style is to blame for that, while games like Dota and Counter-Strike are blowing up and hitting the 1 million concurrent viewer mark pretty regularly these days. Uh, It makes me think that when Riot creates a closed system like the LCS, what they're really doing is making something that serves their hardcore fan base while making it really hard for anybody else to get interested. You know, that's what tournaments like DreamHack or MLG, uh, that's what they're so good at. You know, you tune in for two days and you get a complete whole tournament story. But to follow something like the LCS takes months to get something out of it. Yeah, and you know, I think there's growing discontent across the league ecosystem about Riot's stewardship of the esports side of things. Some of their officiating decisions seem needlessly petty and harmful, and their definition of what constitutes poaching when it comes to like player negotiations seems pretty all-encompassing. Uh, Richard Lewis actually wrote a really good piece recently uh, regarding some players that Valve ended up suspending, uh, I think handing lifetime bans out to for match-fixing, uh, and sort of advocating a, a stance of mercy that Valve should take. But one of the points that Richard brought up in that piece is that if you look at how Riot have handled things, they are sort of they they always play the heavy. They they go in needlessly harshly uh, in their in their management of of the esports system, and you know I think there's he gave a pretty convincing argument for for why that's been a bit unfair and why that has some negatives for the scene as a whole. Uh, and then there's the fact that you could argue that Riot kneecapped a flourishing Korean scene by enforcing the one team one owner rule. Uh, which cut the involvement of organizations like Samsung and SK Telecom by half. 
so I'm wary of this top-down style, especially because right now China still has a pretty amazing regional identity. Uh, their opening ceremonies for these most recent tournaments were some of the most ridiculous, wonderful things I've seen in esports. Uh, and their English broadcast and commentary team are pretty terrific in terms of style and substance, uh, hitting a mark that I'm not sure the Riot-produced streams always always nail. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there are some reasons to think that maybe Riot should have had a lighter hand in Korea and should continue to have a lighter hand in China, but that doesn't seem to be the direction they're moving. And I doubt those concerns about Riot's approach will be allayed by the fact that a charter member of the EU League of Legends scene just got punted out of LCS this week after just one bad season. Yeah, that's right. SK Gaming, which confusingly is not related to the Korean SK Telecom team we're always talking about. Uh, SK Gaming has been a major member of the European scene since the beginning of Pro League of Legends. Their rivalry with Fnatic created some legendary moments between the two teams' meetings. Um, they, the two teams' meetings were called El Clasico and a kind of self-important nod to soccer's Real Madrid and Barcelona rivalry. Uh, but now SK Gaming are out of the LCS. In one season, they've gone from being Fnatic's main rival during the spring season to getting dropped out of the premier level. You know, Rob, what went wrong here? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the superficial answer is that they lost their star carry for Given at the end of the spring season. He was a major reason for their success, and he left for kind of vague, hand-wavy uh, reasons. But there was an overall sense that he didn't think SK were hungry enough. But Forgiven is also a notoriously hard player to work with, and he has a legendarily vile temper when it comes to League of Legends itself. And, you know, he was in the news recently for getting suspended uh, just on the eve of uh, the last run, to, run up to the playoffs, which really hurt his new team, Gambit. Uh, so was Forgiven's departure the symptom or the disease? You know, for as long as I've followed SK Gaming, they've had swings like this. Uh, post forgiven, they weren't as good a team this season, but they they fell fast and far throughout the summer. And now, after losing their relegation series to the Gamers Two team three uh, two, SK finally hit bottom. But now from League of Legends, we pivot over to the StarCraft world where we were treated to an amazing week of matches as virtually every running StarCraft II league had something awesome to watch. Uh, a quick note about structure before we get too deep into StarCraft because it does have a little bit of a confusing league makeup. Uh, StarCraft II has four leagues that run more or less concurrently, one of which is the Pro League, which is the Team League. Uh, the other three are the three leagues that make up the StarCraft individual system. Uh, there's the WCS, uh, which is where everybody who is not a top-tier Korean player competes. And then there's the two Korean leagues, Star League and GSL. GSL is considered sort of the top prize, but Star League is a top-tier tournament as well. Uh, the, the highlight of this awesome week at StarCraft was, without a doubt, the Star League semifinal between Byul and TY, which was just brilliant. It went all the way to uh, Game 7, uh, which is always a delight. But it was Game 5 that, that became, honestly, one of the best games of StarCraft that you and I have ever seen. Yeah, and, you know, to give you an idea of how freaking good this series was and, and why you should watch the entire thing, uh, and if you haven't had the results yet, go to Liquipedia and, or go try to find the spoiler-free VODs. We'll wait, uh, because you should absolutely watch this whole series. But I woke up late that morning, and I didn't see it live. 
Uh, I caught the uh, the VODs, the replays via Liquipedia, and on Liquipedia they display the result. Uh, but I'd arrayed all the individual replays out on, out on out on tabs, and I was going through them in sequence. And increasingly, as I watched the series play out, I convinced myself I no longer knew the outcome. I had to have misread the page, because the swings in fortune were so intense that I couldn't connect what I was seeing with any kind of box score I'd seen earlier. Uh, so it was exactly <laughs> the kind of match that StarCraft needs, that fans like you and I need. And of course... It was Terran versus Zerg. Yeah, so Terran versus Zerg has long been, you know, the marquee matchup of StarCraft. It's the most exciting and dynamic matchup. The races have the most profound differences in play style, which I think it makes the most interesting as well. And it's sort of just like it plays well with like the uh, the visual aesthetic of, Star- of StarCraft for you. You 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 just you intrinsically understand this battle between these human these humanoid and and and, and mech based armies versus this insectoid race. It just makes a lot of sense for what StarCraft is. Uh, so, so beyond that, we also had Biel playing against Ty. And the thing you need to understand about Biel is that he is amazing at StarCraft, but he's also an emotional wreck. You know, you could see him in the booth during this match multiple times during the series with tears nearly in his eyes. And when he wins a match, there's this look of pure shock on his face because he just does not believe in himself at all. He has no idea he's capable of winning a StarCraft match. You know, and T.Y., on the other hand, is this really talented longtime player uh, who they were saying during the broadcast, I actually didn't know this, has been a part of Korean esports organizations since he was eight years old playing StarCraft Brood War professionally under the name Baby, uh, which I find personally hilarious. Uh, And it's funny you mentioned you started to disbelieve the box score because I had that same reaction. Even in retrospect, I find it hard to believe that Biel managed to win this when it seemed like T.Y. must have beat him 10 to 12 times over the course of this best of seven series. And it sort of it culminated in this amazing game five where T.Y. must have had the game won six or seven times before the end. It was incredible. Yeah, you know, the whole series is worth watching uh, because each game stands in relations to the uh, in relation to the others. But Game 5, if you had to pick, was the most intense and the most encapsulating game of that entire series. It was this battle on Vani Research Station, which is this long north-south oriented map. But unlike some other maps that are laid out this way, Vani is is huge. Uh, There's a lot of room for armies to make lateral maneuvers. uh, So it's a really good place for a sort of StarCraft fencing match. Uh, And that's exactly what we got. It was this game full of these crazy turnarounds and brilliant plays that you just don't see in in StarCraft that often. Uh, There's a saying in StarCraft that when you're ahead, you get more ahead. I'm not sure if uh, Artosis and Tasteless, the two casters for the GSL, I don't know if they they coined it, but it is a thing they they say a lot and is sort of uh, proliferated throughout the community. Like a lot of sayings, it's not always true, and uh, you know there are reasons why people have to risk everything for a, on a knockout punch. But generally, StarCraft is a game where success breeds success. You take a victory, you use that advantage to set up your next victory until you win the game. That didn't happen in Game 5. And I think it was partly due to this mix of emotional and physical stress that these players were under. Because the insanity begins with a Terran army just massacring a really expensive Zerg army. Uh, so the, the, the Terran ha- are, have gone mech, uh, so they're, they're more expensive units, they're more durable. Uh, 
And Buell sends in his aerial unit, Vipers. Uh, he sends them in too early. And the plan was they were going to cast Blinding Cloud, uh, an ability that blinds ranged units, which is what Terran armies are entirely reliant on. He's going to cast Blinding Cloud on this Terran army, and that was going to open a path for Buell's really expensive Ultralisks to charge forward and destroy this Terran, this, this range-dependent Terran army. Uh, but when the Vipers were lost at the start of that fight, uh, Buell charges in anyway with his, with his Ultralisks, and they're attacking into an open field of fire against this line of siege tanks, and they just get cut to ribbons. Uh, it's basically like Pickett's charge with giant bugs. Uh, and that that right there could have and probably should have been all she wrote. T.Y. was fine after that fight. At that point, he, he, could, he, he could pull back, uh, start setting up a siege line, and begin to choke off the Zerg, who desperately need to expand and maintain map presence in, in a matchup like this. But T.Y., and, and this was a theme throughout this game, decided he had to win right now, right this second. And that set up the game's absolutely crazy second act, because I think both of these players were in this state of like inspired panic for the next 20 minutes. Uh, so T.Y. goes in with this mech army and tries to deliver the knockout punch right then and there. And he basically closes the range on the Ultralisks, which are basically a huge melee super unit. And this is exactly what they need. This is a gift from heaven. So this mech army gets completely destroyed. And, and that's doubly bad because mech armies are slow to build. It is difficult to replace mech losses. And they're expensive in terms of resources. Uh, the Zerg, on the other hand, can replenish losses incredibly fast uh, because they, they have this really fluid production pipeline. So at this point, it's, it's practically Buell's game to lose. And he does. He does the exact same thing that Buell did. <laughs> uh, he goes for a full-on counterattack with no air cover and gets gunned down by these Terran Banshees that uh, T.Y. has constructed, uh, which is an air unit that, that attacks the gr ground units, and the Ultralisks can't hit that. Uh, so Buell walks into this and just gets cut to pieces, and so it goes on, and it's back and forth for, I, I swear, what seemed like the next three hours. Yeah, well, it's actually, it was a 60-minute game by the accelerated in-game clock, which translates to about 40 minutes of, of real time, which is an absurd length of time for a game of StarCraft II, which usually clocks in at around, you know, maybe 10 minutes in real time, 15 minutes by the in-game clock. Uh, you know, what I loved watching about this game in particular is that when a game of StarCraft goes this long, the playbook goes out the window. There's There's no way to prepare for this. Like, nobody... Nobody really knows how to win a game that gets this absurd and this far into the game. Opponents just sort of keep trying to build new armies to counter the armies their opponents built to counter their previous armies and so on and so forth. The snake just sort of keeps eating its tail like that. Uh, and, and that happened probably six times in that game. And you end up with these weird compositions that you've rarely ever seen before and that you're not even really sure the players know how to properly utilize. And the type of play you see, you never get to see these players do this ever again uh, and and they're just trying to eke just a little bit more out of the gameplay system to get an edge uh and honestly i still can't believe Buell pulled this series out i hope everybody gets a chance to watch this series so they can hear the caster wolf shout over and over again oh no Buell, what are you doing that's a terrible engagement and just get ripped to shreds over and over again as, as Buell would throw away his huge armies with zero effect yeah and you know Buell's play was 
interesting from that standpoint because I'm not entirely sure that his miscues were as bad as they seemed. There, because there was an endurance aspect to this series that I think you could definitely tell was starting to play a role in like Game Five and, and onwards. Uh, the, the, when the when the camera cut away to show these players, uh, you could tell they were both they were on pins and needles. Uh, they had that look on their face that like it was very familiar to me from playing StarCraft. You know, when you're in a game and you're you're completely like at sea and you're just trying to stay above water, like that that feeling like you're playing you're just you know playing at the limit of your ability. And they had that expression on their faces for for a, a lot of that series. But Buell did some really he made he was, he was very pragmatic i would say as a zerg player there were a lot of moments yeah he threw he threw units away but there were also a lot of moments where yes he was taking inefficient exchanges because on the macro level he knew he had a winning position he could he didn't even need to trade efficiently he just needed to force trades if you watched game 4 buell just brute forced his way through that game he was practically you know attack moving and barely microing his army and Yes, uh, T.Y. was able to have some really nice engagements and hold on maybe a little longer than he otherwise would have. But Buell was basically coasting his way to victory there, whereas T.Y. was sort of having to play at full throttle the entire series. And I do kind of wonder, in a seven-game series, whether that's sort of like husbanding of your mental and physical resources begins to have an effect in game six or seven right like if you follow hockey you know there's always that there's always that discussion of how hard did you play in, in the early games and what's going to be left in the tank uh for the later games i kind of wonder if you saw a dynamic like that playing out in this series where you know what buell knew uh when the time had come to you know work smarter not harder I don't know if I can give that benefit to Buell just because the the guy is just, he seems like he's a, on the verge of tears at all times. Like, I don't think that this guy knows how to leave something emotional left in the tank. Uh, but uh, who knows with this guy. Uh, elsewhere in StarCraft II, we also got to watch the two semifinal matches in the Pro League system, which could not have been more different. Uh, we saw Sabinu take on KT Rolster. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, uh, Sabinu is this ridiculous underdog against KT. Rolster, who is one of the juggernaut stalwarts of the of Korean StarCraft. And, you know, you just look up at the lineup of Sabinu, and it's this hilarious group of, of has-beens. There's no other way to oh, say come it. On. <laughs> They're like the expendables of StarCraft. They just are. They were amazing in their day, but none of them have any chance of winning an individual tournament anymore, and yet they continue to put up an amazing show. And it, it's one of those really great cases where it just has to be down to coaching and preparation. You could really see it in, in the first match where uh, Sabinu sends out MMA to deal with Flash. These are both Terran players, uh, which is, you know, generally that you would consider Flash versus MMA to be very, very lopsided matchup uh, in favor of Flash. He's one of the legends of the game, and MMA is widely considered to be over the hill. Uh, but MMA proceeds to just destroy Flash with this hilariously specific build that only functions because he knows exactly where Flash is going to place his buildings on this map. He clearly studies Flash's games uh, on this specific map and realizes he always puts his, his buildings in this exact same place and that there is a way to exploit it by setting up siege tanks nearby and proceeds to just basically camp his 
production line uh, from afar uh, and decimate one of the greats of the game. And this is like the story for Sabenu. They're just a smarter team than probably anybody else in, in Pro League, despite having almost no real talent. And, you know, perhaps they're better for that. They know because they don't have that talent, they're going to need to outthink their opponents. So I need to interject there because I think <laughs> I think you are underselling. I think you're underselling this team. Uh, and part of it, I think, is your predisposition to bury players before they're dead. Uh, and and yet you have this weird fixation on Flash, which uh, I don't know. We should we should probably have you see a therapist about that because oh. talk about a guy eating out on his reputation. By the way, like it ain't Brood War anymore. Like you never you don't know what Flash you're gonna get. He's uh, he's not he's not done yet. His his rise has not yet come. But I think the reason Flash is still good is the same reason why a lot of these players on Spinu are still good. Yeah, they don't have sort of the, the raw talent anymore, I think, to, to win the sort of individual tournaments, which are so taxing and intense on individual players. But because you have all these experienced old warhorses, and the nature of Pro League is that you get to put all your sort of analytical abilities toward these really specific matchups, I think that ends up favoring teams like Spinu a little bit in that, you know, a lot of these guys have been to this rodeo before they they know how to win games like this and it's this controlled setting where they don't have to play an entire weekend tournament they don't have to grind their way through this like nightmarish bracket they've got to play you know one maybe two games in a week and i think that can really favor uh some hardened veterans and i would say like you know i i've you know they've got some they've got some veteran talent i think that are still really, really good in terms of like pro league performance. Uh, like, I you know you'll 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 call me out for this, but I still say <laughs> Dong Regu is a damn good uh, pro league player. He's he's a very good team league player. I'm not sure he's capable of doing much in an individual tournament anymore, but I think you know a, a player like that who's got this really great like intellectual and analytical understanding of the game can right. still flourish in pro league. I do. I do agree with that. Um, you know, and it was kind of unfortunate. I really, I, I mentioned last week. I really did want to see this team win uh, because I, I really like that style of play. Uh, but it, 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 I feel like it's just, it's just true. Like Sabino's only real, like individual league level talent is curious, and that's basically the only player that they've got. Um, and it was kind of unfortunate that they lost this week in the in the playoffs to KT Rolster. Uh, but it was in a great series that went all the way to the ace match uh, in which Rob's absolute favorite Zerg player, Don mm-hmm. Regu, just couldn't seal the deal against the handsomest man in StarCraft, which is Zest. Um, that that guy looks like match, an underwear model. I, he is, he's got to be. You, if you look out there, there are, there are modeling photos of the guy that are just unreal. He's the handsomest guy in StarCraft. Uh, but yeah, that, that final match, by the way, is another terrific one that you should all check out, Dongregu versus Zest. Um, but yeah, that does it all for all the news from eSports Today. Now let's talk about eSports tomorrow. Andrew, you know I hate eSports memes. <laughs> but I have to say that in the wake of this last week of StarCraft, I have found my passion. <laughs> Hashtag passion, if you will. Uh, is there anything for me? the prodigal StarCraft fan, to enjoy this week. There's always something going on in StarCraft, Rob. Uh, This week, we're finally going to get into the meat of the WCS system to see if we're finally going to get a crop of non-Korean players who can stand up to the Korean-born players who routinely show up to snipe that tournament. 
Uh, all week we'll be watching that as the tournament reaches its conclusion this Sunday. There will also be the Pro League Round 4 playoff finals between KT Rolster and SKT1, which is one of the classic matchups in Korean StarCraft that I'm really looking forward to checking out. Uh, and then we'll also have the Star League semifinals between Rain and Hero, and it pains me to say it, but you can probably afford to miss that one. It's between two of the world's top players, but Protoss versus Protoss is kind of a disaster uh it's probably the worst matchup to watch in starcraft 2 uh but there's actually some good action coming up in in the fighting game world for pretty much the first time since evo ended which is exciting uh we'll be watching the fall classic uh major which takes place in raleigh north carolina from the 11th to the 13th and then the saigon cup which will be on september 12th uh, both of these are sort of uh, prelude tournaments for the Capcom Cup series. And the Saigon Cup in particular, I'm hoping, will be a chance for us to get a look at top Asian Street Fighter talent, which is rare for us to get to see in the West outside of EVO. And we'll be discussing these tournaments on next week's show on September 15th. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Esports Today, an Idle Thumbs Network podcast produced by Michael Hermes. You can learn more about the show and discuss esports with us in the Idle Thumbs community at our website, esports.today. We'd also love to hear your feedback and answer questions on the air, so please drop us a line at questions at esports.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at ES2D Podcast. If you've enjoyed the esports today so far, please review and rate us on iTunes, which is an incredibly helpful tool for a new podcast, and share it with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be back next week to discuss the past, present, and future of esports. For Andrew Gruen, this is Rob Zachney, signing off.